But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, church, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in uh, probably one of the most lengthy passages of Scripture that we've uh, preached through before. As we began this series last week in the gospel or in uh, the letter of Romans, we're entitling the series, The Gospel in Romans, The Power of God for Salvation. Uh, We want to give attention to the gospel that we find there. Last week, we began by introducing the message and the messenger, the Apostle Paul and the gospel that he, this good news that he has to preach uh, to the church in Rome. And our prayer for this series is that over the coming years, really, as we work our way through Romans, that the Lord would build for us a foundation of faith. And it's an important word, crucial word, particularly this morning, a foundation of for our faith in the power of God for salvation. So what we're doing this morning, while last week we covered the first two verses of Romans, this morning we're going to begin a four-part mini-series through the whole book. So this morning we're going to cover chapters 1 through 4. Now, uh, some of you are doing the math on that, and you're like, okay, if it took him 45 minutes to do two verses last week, times 100, and uh, yeah, this is going to be a really quick overview. We're only going to skim past the words that are there, which means I hope you'll keep your Bibles open so that you can skim with me, so you can pay attention to the words that are there as we work our way through these four chapters together. Uh, There's a a breakdown of Romans that I've found in a number of places, and one of the places that I found it, it was, it, it breaks it down in these four ways, coming under grace, living under grace, the overflow of grace, and the church that is shaped by grace. This morning we're in the coming under grace portion, uh, what I've entitled grace alone through faith alone. Believe it or not, that's not very creative. If you get to know, get to know first uh, Romans 1 through 4, that's just what's there, right? So let's begin our time together by uh, flipping back to Romans chapter 1. And we'll begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your kindness to us this morning. That we have your word. We have the truth to interrupt our vain pursuits. Our imagined good news. Our unrighteousness and our unholiness. That your word has interrupted us. And your spirit has applied your word to our hearts. That we can receive your word with faith this morning. I pray that you would interrupt us again. Lord, if there is one who has not yet believed, that you would interrupt and give the gift of faith that your word would work the power of God to salvation this morning. For all who have believed, that we would take hold of your word with faith and your word would do its transforming work and a foundation-building work for us this morning. 
Our hope is in you, Lord. You are our God. You are our Savior. You are the glorious one. You are the grace giver. And you are, have become, by grace, our friend. Thank you for loving us. We pray that you would love us with your word and spirit this morning in the midst of the church. Amen. Well, we have to begin here. We have to begin with the gospel. The aim of Paul in Romans is very clear. We're told it right up front in verse 15. He says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why does he want to go and visit them? Well, because he's eager for something very specific. He's eager to preach the gospel. Now, until he's able to get to them, what's he going to do? Write a letter about something else? No. He's going to write a letter to them that preaches the gospel. And then he immediately gives this incredible, grace-defining, heart-changing definition. He opens up in verses 16 and 17, and I don't think you can find enough highlighters and pens and pencils to circle and give attention to these words. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for something. The power of God leveraged specifically for salvation to everyone. And then he narrows that everyone to what he's really talking about. It's who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in this gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God. And that power is leveraged for something specific that is salvation for everyone who would believe. Now, I have to be real careful because it's such an incredible passage I might just stay here for a while. I might just wind up preaching Romans 16 and 17, and that day is coming. We'll come back to it. But for now, let's just walk through four statements that are here that I think set us up for Romans 1 through 4, and really for the remainder of the book, for salvation. This morning in Romans 1 through 4, Paul is going to demonstrate the severity of the need for salvation. He's going to set this up for us. Having demonstrated the need for salvation, he's going to demonstrate the futility of any attempt on our part to save ourselves. And finally, he's going to describe for us how God accomplishes salvation. What what is the way in which he leverages his power, his infinite, glorious, eternal power? How does he leverage that for salvation? We'll see that in chapter 4. Now, this salvation is to everyone who believes. Paul now hints at one of the central topics of his letter. The central topic of, uh, a central topic of his letter is this idea of belief. That this power of God for salvation, it, let's be clear. If God leverages his power for something, does it happen? We're talking about the infinite, eternal, all good and wise power of God. And if he leverages that 
for a purpose, and we're told what that purpose is, that purpose is going to happen. Salvation. And we're told where he leverages that is for everyone who believes. That everyone who believes will have what God has leveraged his power for. Belief, faith, therefore, is a, an all-important topic for us. And he's going to come back to it over and over again. He then tells us in this passage, to the Jew and the Greek. This is another major theme. The church in Rome has both Jewish and Gentile or Greek members. The Jews were expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius sometime around AD 41. And this would have included at least all of the ethnically Jewish members of the church in Rome. And it may have also included some of the Gentile converts to Christianity, as it would seem that to many in Rome, Christianity is viewed as a Christian sect. And so, sometime after AD 41, the church in Rome is missing quite a number of its members, and specifically quite a number of its Jewish members. So Paul's writing sometime a decade after many of these members would have been restored to the church. So that means that the church to whom Paul is writing has experienced a serious separation due to persecution. And that may explain some of the issues of unity that Paul brings up and argues for throughout the letter. There is a portion of the church that has been removed for a decade. And now they're returning. And, and, and what does this look like? What are, are the Jews and the Greeks, the Jews and the Gentiles, really part of the same church? Or are they part of a separate church after this long time? apart. And then we have this phrase, again, an all-important phrase. Verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I cannot wait to preach this passage in detail, but for now, this is crucial. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. Hear this. It's sitting there. It says it, right? The gospel reveals God's righteousness, not ours. The gospel outs us as sinners, the sinners that we are. The good news has this to say about us. You're a sinner in need of salvation. That's what the gospel says about me. The gospel reveals my unrighteousness. But the gospel also simultaneously, and this is the glorious purpose and the means of salvation, that is to reveal the righteousness of God. As we cling by faith to the promise of God and the fulfillment of Christ, the, the righteousness of God, that alien righteousness, one of my favorite theological phrases about this passage, this, this God's righteousness is alien to me. It's on the outside. It is an invader if I would take, take hold of it by faith. I would receive that which is from outside. This righteousness, the righteousness of God, becomes my salvation. What follows is how Paul explains these themes for the church. And so let's look at it. Like I said, if I'm not careful, I'll stay just right here. But we need to keep moving so that we can see these themes developed in the coming chapters. The first thing that we see as he develops this, the themes of the gospel begins in verse 16, where we see the wrath of God. 
Romans 1, I'm sorry, 18, Romans 1, 18. The, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We can't talk about salvation if we don't first discuss the problem. In other words, we have to, and Paul does discuss our need for salvation. What's the big deal about the power of God being wielded for the purpose of salvation if you and I don't need it? If there's some other way to do it? Why, why use all that power when we could use just a little bit of my power? to fix whatever's wrong with me. It's not really redemption. It's not really salvation. It's not really rescue. It's just, you know, a second chance, maybe. But that's not what the Apostle Paul unpacks for us in Romans. Salvation is needed because of the pervasive spread of sin and idolatry throughout the whole of mankind. And God's wrath, His just and good judgment upon sinners necessitates that if those sinners would survive, there is a salvation that is needed. So we need salvation from both sin and judgment. We need salvation from the wickedness of sin at work within us and among us. And we need salvation from the justice of God upon sinners like you and me. Do you see it? You see, you don't need, just need salvation from your sin. You need salvation from the justice of God upon your sin. And I said it earlier, this is so important. God's good and just judgment upon sin. Now, we could start by recounting the story of the fall. We could remember that, that man was created perfect. Humanity, along with all of creation, was created perfect. We have that account in Genesis chapter 1. God made Adam, and then out of Adam he made Eve. And God made them male and female in perfect fellowship with both God and one another. It was good, beautiful, and perfect. And and not not only a good design, but a good execution of that design. But then we keep reading as we read through 1, Genesis 1, and Genesis 2, we come to Genesis 3, and we see that Eve is being tempted by a serpent who is the devil. And Adam and Eve together, they disobeyed God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. And by rejecting God's command there, they essentially shook their fist at God and said, on my own, I can live. I heard your command. I understood your command. I was even able to repeat your command to the serpent, but I reject your command, and I have a way. I I know what your way is, but I have a way to live. Does that resonate with you at all? Do you have a way to live? Do you have a design for your life that you have pursued as though it was good and on your own you would live apart from the Lord's provision, apart from from the Lord's design, apart from his command. But they and we are wrong. God judged their sin and rebellion. He cast them out of the garden and placed Adam and Eve and their descendants under the curse of death, as he said they would. Because apart from God, his design, his purposes, and his ways, that is death. And he's good. He's good. 
He will not let death reign in his kingdom. He will not let rebellion run rampant in his kingdom. He's good. He's a good and righteous king. It's a This is a good and right account of sin's entrance into the world, and it's right and true account of why God's wrath is upon humanity in their sin. But when I share this account, I will often add this little phrase, because it seems like this is all about Adam and Eve, right? But by our own sin and rebellion, we show ourselves to be rightly counted as children of our first parents, Adam and Eve. You might say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And here we are. Yeah, you can tell I'm like Adam and Eve. You see, God is just to hold not only Adam and Eve to account, but all of humanity. For every one of us also has joined with our own sin. We've joined in their rebellion. Paul begins at this point with the spread of the first parent's sin and rebellion. He begins right here. He doesn't tell that whole backstory right here. He begins with the fact that we are rightly counted as among our first parent's sin. The wrath of God is revealed. I know it might seem odd, but I've come to love and appreciate this passage. I would call you, read it. Read it this week. Read it a number of times. It helps me to understand the state of the world around me and the state of my own heart apart from the righteousness of Christ, that alien righteousness that invades and transforms my life. The wrath of God, it says in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his power, his divine nature have been all clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, humanity, is without excuse. They knew God, but they didn't honor God. What follows is four statements about the spread of sin and idolatry. Uh, Idolatry is the heart of sin. Because idolatry is a rejection of God's rightful rule and God's right ordering of our lives. That we would establish an, an alternative rule. We would establish another order. And that alternative rule and that other order is idolatry. And that idolatry plays itself out in in practical, on-the-ground, active sin in our lives. So that in verse 18, we're told, first, that we suppress the truth. As creatures made in the image of God, we know that we are not our own masters. And yet, by ungodliness and unrighteousness, the passage says, we suppress the truth. We suppress that we, we, we act like we are our own. We act like we are our own masters. We take on that idolatry and we reject the way of the Lord. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Failure to honor and give thanks. Again, we're creatures. All that we have and all that we are belongs to our maker. That's what it means to be a creature. That's what we are. And so there is a failure to honor and give thanks to God. 
And, and such failure, it, to acknowledge that is to acknowledge reality. This is what is real. It's, it is a failure to acknowledge as good God's eternal power and his divine nature. To act as though we were lords of our own lives is idolatry. To confess that the Lord is maker and creator is to acknowledge reality. It's not some great discovery. It's simple truth. And so what we see that follows in verses 24 and following, I won't read it all, but I'll begin in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their own hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because some exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen? God gave them up. What did he give them up to? He gave mankind in their sin and rebellion up to impurity, dishonoring their bodies, dishonorable passions, and much more. You remember that I said Adam and Eve's rebellion as though they shook their fist at God and said, on my own, I can live. It's as though the Lord says, okay, let's see how that goes. Let's see how that life plays out for humanity and see if you would call that life or flourishing or good. And then we have verse 32. This is a verse I, I think about almost daily. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Man, I don't think that there's a phrase in the Bible that better describes our cultural moment. We're not unique in all of history, but man, it's a good description. You've heard the phrase, misery loves company. You've heard that before? Well, there is no greater misery in this world than our sin. And if we can find somebody to sin with us, we love that company. It's a little bit of affirmation, though ultimately our sin winds up feeling like dying. It's what everyone else is doing. And so it must be a right and good way, this idolatrous, on our own sort of way to live. The wrath in this opening passage is not actually the final judgment. The wrath that this passage opens with is being worked out in this age, in, in this life, in the age in which we live now. It's the discomfort that we feel. It's the disorientation. It's the misery that the Lord uses by His Spirit and His Word to convince sinners of their need for another way. That as we go off, on my own I shall live, and I find myself disoriented, and I find myself lost, and I find myself discomforted. The Lord uses that moment to say, you know you were created for another way. You know there is something that is righteous, and good, and holy, that you are creature, and that's not a bad thing. What if you honored the Creator? So at some point, by the prompting of grace, we might see sin and its effect and say, on my own, I cannot live. On my own, I'm dying. Will someone please help me? And the Lord meets that cry, meets the cry of that human soul with the righteousness of God, salvation leveraged to those who believe. As we turn to chapter 2, we're going to see this idea of a failure to repent. Let's remember 
that salvation is for everyone who believes. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He's, he's opening up a, 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 an argument for us to see that we are that Romans 1 people. And he opens this up, that in chapter 1, Paul argued that all of mankind has gone the way of sin and idolatry. And here he makes it clear that we're without excuse for it, where we ought to have turned from our sin. Instead of turning from our sin and turning to God, we turn to our fellow sinners and say, you're a sinner. (laughs) We are good at it. We're good at judging people. We're good at seeing that the way that the people around us live is destructive, not only to ourselves, but to themselves. It's not hard to see. And this is what we turn to. We turn to judgment rather than to repentance. Look at verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We know it because we ourselves would do it. And we'd do it more severely if we had all the power of God. I mean, think about the things you want to do to the people who cut you off in traffic. Right? Now, let's give you all the power of God and see how things go on the highway around you. We're without excuse. We know what judgment is. We know what wrath is. We know what wrong is. And we see it all around us. Now, there's this interesting thing, this, this idea of the righteousness of God. In Romans, the phrase the righteousness of God is not mainly about judgment. That, that word is reserved for the word justice a number of times. But as we see here, Paul is concerned to ground God's wrath, his judgment upon sin in righteousness. He is right to judge. We are without excuse. He's not just swooping in, knocking us out when we're like, what in the world happened? What did I do? Now, we say that all the time, but we know exactly what we did because we see it in our neighbor. He says that is righteous. That is just what the Lord does in judgment. But God's righteousness in Romans, as we saw in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, is the gracious gift of God for sinners for their salvation. See, when I think of the righteousness of God, I think, oh, he's coming. He's righteous. He's just to judge. But that's actually not how Paul winds up using that phrase. Here's John Murray on the righteousness of God. He says, Pastor John Murray writes, is not the, uh, the righteousness of God is not the attribute of justice, but the righteousness provided in the gospel to meet the need of which the wrath of God is the manifestation. See, there is a wrath of God against unrighteousness. So what do we need? So that we would not experience the wrath of God. What do we need? Righteousness is what is needed. You're not going to get it from me. Don't look up here. You're not going to get it from you, and you know it. We need an invading, alien righteousness of God that the wrath of God would not fall on me. We are not that righteousness. 
instead of turning from our sin, we turn to our neighbor in judgment and piling unrighteousness on unrighteousness and judgment upon judgment. More than that, we presume on God's kindness. Look at verse 4. Do we presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Our responsibility is not to judge others, but seeing sin to repent. That's our responsibility. God has been patient. God has given us a season in which to see the futility of our sinfulness, to examine our lives and to examine the lives of those around us and see on our own we're dying. This is a season of forbearance. He's held off the final day of judgment. There is judgment coming, and that judge is Jesus, but he has not yet come in judgment. How did he come? With redemption, by the power of God, in righteousness, that we might receive his righteousness. But he is coming. He is yet coming. Romans 2.16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There is a judgment coming, and the judge, the standard, is Jesus. God's judgment is just, and he's given an opportunity for us to see the folly of our way and to repent, but we've continued in the rebellion of our first parents. We've continued in a failure to repent, just like when God called for them, where are you? They didn't say, we've sinned. We're broken. They hid in their shame. And then they accused and they pretended and they performed and they blamed. This is our way. We need to be saved. And that brings us to chapter three. The theme of chapter three is that there is none who is righteous. Righteous. God's wrath is revealed upon sinners. And yet, if we know our biblical history, we know that while most of humanity were turned over to ignorance and folly and rebellion, there was one people who were given an authoritative account of the truth. God turned almost all of humanity over to the suppression of truth. But there was a people who were given knowledge. That is, the Jewish people who were given the oracles of God. Look at verse 31. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And the answer is much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The very means by which we might reverse this suppression of the truth, but we have received revelation. The Jews had direct contact with the revelation of God, specifically his steadfast love and mercy. The Lord is faithful. Whether the law reveals the unfaithfulness of mankind, whether it be the Jews or the Gentiles, it doesn't matter. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is steadfast in his love. Steadfast in his mercy, new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. This is the revelation of God recorded in the oracles. The revelation all throughout the scriptures. So when we get to verse 
9, what then? Are we, Paul speaking, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. It turns out that the Jews and the Gentiles all failed to turn, repent, and believe. Each, each one of us as a, as a particular human soul. No, notice that Paul identifies himself as a Jew. Are, are we Jews any better off? The author of this letter, this profound, inspired by the Holy Spirit letter from which we will learn greatly over the coming weeks and months. What happens in Rome, in Romans, one thing that cannot, whatever happens in Romans, one thing that cannot happen is anything close to anti-Semitism. And friends, that's happened from this book. You may or may not be familiar with the way that that has happened, but many have tried to leverage this glorious letter of Romans for anti-Semitism, to hate the Jews. There just isn't any window or opportunity left open for us in that. Paul was a Jew who follows a Lord, Jesus Christ, was born of a virgin that in the flesh stands under not only Adam, but also his father, Joseph, that he was born and and raised, spoke the words of the word of the Jewish people in the synagogue and in the temple. There just isn't any room for anything but the honor of God for us here. And there's also room for us to see ourselves, whether Jew or Gentile, as sinners. Romans 3, verse 10. We're going to go and read this whole quotation from the psalm. As it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is, and this is the problem, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a quotation from both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. We point you there. We have no hope of salvation in ourselves. There's no righteousness to be found in our hearts. Whether Jew or Gentile, all are sinners. This is what Paul lays before us here. While the Jew has the great grace to be interrupted in his way by the steadfast love and mercy of God, the truth of the psalm remains on his own. Apart from the interruption of God's revelation, he is a sinner. Romans 3.23. This is one that's worth underlining, putting a a little cross in the margin of to remind you of the gospel statement here. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Let's be clear. It's not accurate to define sin as that which makes us uncomfortable. And that is, if you listen, listen to words that our culture uses in the place of sin. They don't use the word sin. And it just doesn't, doesn't really work. I mean, sin would imply something religious, something maybe above us. But when the, when the culture talks about something that, that is wrong, 
inevitably, what is wrong with it is it makes you or someone else uncomfortable. Friends, that is a woefully insufficient definition of sin. To sin is to fall short of God's perfect glory. The glory of his design for humanity as creatures made in his image, designed to walk in his way that he sets out for us. Sin is to take up our own way and claim that we are God. It's idolatry. It's not simple discomfort. But verse 24 comes. That's why we put a cross on the side. This is good news. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Where there are none who are righteous, God is just to forgive sinners. And you've got to wonder, how in the world is that possible? This is an essential point of theology. Romans 3, 26 Circle this guy, underline it, put a star in the margin, memorize it. Romans 3, 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just and the justifier in Christ. An essential point of theology, when We have seen God's wrath upon sin. We've seen our failure to turn in repentance, but instead to judge our neighbors and to prove our own sinfulness. We've seen that none can escape judgment, whether Jew or Gentile, that all are sinners in need of grace. But then we see this note of grace right here in verse 26, that Jesus is just and a justifier. He works justice in others. Romans 3.26 is our first real glimpse of this idea of justification in Romans. And this is where we turn to our theme in chapter 4. Justification by faith. The definition of justification is this this idea of being declared righteous. Now, we've just spent three chapters nailing down the reality that we are not righteous. How in the world could those who are not righteous be declared righteous unless you're just a liar? Unless you're just being fooled or fooling someone? Well, this is what justification by faith is all about. Look at verse 3 with me. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a quotation from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Again, a, a, a passage to go back and remember. Genesis 15 is essential in our understanding of the revelation of redemption throughout history. The argument of, Roman, of Romans 4, verses 4 through 5, follows this way. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted to him as a gift, but are his due. So there's a work that receives a wage. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, i.e. is a gift. See, it's not his righteousness. It is a gift, an alien righteousness, counted to him. 
Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. Unpack this for us with, song, with words of praise. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, justification is God's work. God's work. My family was sitting at the table the other day and we were just asking this question. What did Abraham do? I mean, really, this great father of the faith, what did he do? See, I know what Moses did, leading people out of their slavery in Egypt and parting the Red Sea, leading them through a desert, pillars of cloud and fire all around, bringing down the Ten Commandments from God. I know what Moses did. What did Abraham do? I really can't think of anything particularly special. But we are told this, he believed God. And that, not a work for which he receives the wage of redemption, but for his faith in God, he receives a gift. That's not due him because he believed, but because the Lord promised it's received by faith. Justification is God's work. Justification is his will, and it's by his way. And so since justification is according to God's purpose, he also absorbs any responsibility, any implications of justice for bringing about justification. Listen, salvation, this is important because you and I are proud people. Salvation is not an obligation. God works salvation not under no compulsion at all. There is no one tapping God on the shoulder and said, when are you going to save those people? Because you know you're supposed to do that. No. Justification, salvation, is God's will. It's his purpose. Our work is to trust God's good will and to give thanks for his good work. God, this is who you are. This is what you've chosen. This is the the word that you've come to reveal, a word of salvation, I believe. I believe, and I say that's good. Not like my death way. That sounds like a life way. Remember, our responsibility from Romans 1.21 was to honor God and give thanks to him. That's our big work. That's what we contribute to our salvation. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. You are the Redeemer. Romans 4.10 is an essential, crucial verse because it asks a crucial question and its implications are profound. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? And friends, we will spend time in this when we come to it. It was not after but before he was circumcised. That is, before the obedience to any law, before any command was given to Abraham, he believed and he was counted as righteous. Then the Lord gives the command of circumcision. And then, then Abraham obeys. Abraham is surely the father of the circumcision, the father of the Jewish people, but he's also the father of the people of faith. And those are not identical phrases. There are those who are circumcised who do not believe. And there are those who believe 
who are not human descendants of Abraham because the word of grace has come to their ears. Justification, therefore, is not a matter of the flesh. Justification, which comes by faith alone, is a matter of faith alone. For the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Romans 4.16 says this. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Do you share the faith of Abraham? That here's God, that here's the promise of a righteousness that is from above, that here's a way of salvation, of blessing for humanity, not curse, and says, I believe. I believe. The righteousness of God comes by faith. This is the work of the gospel. This is the promise that has been revealed in the work of Christ. You see, Abraham didn't see the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the righteous reign. He only heard news of blessing and he believed God. You've seen it all. You've heard the whole news. You don't just have the promise, you have the revelation of the mystery. That's no mystery any longer. We know how we are saved, not just that we will be. Do you believe? God's wrath is upon sinners. It's true. God is just to judge sinners like you and me. All have sinned, and so God is just to judge all the world. God has revealed not only his righteous wrath, but also a righteousness that can be obtained by faith. And faith is the means by which we take hold of the righteousness of God that justifies the unjust. So that we are turned from idolaters to worshipers. You know this is the application point to almost every message because this is the application point of faith. There is a call to faith. And having received the gift of grace by faith, this is where we walk. Look at verses Verse 10 and 11 of chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, salvation. Then look at this, verse 11. More than that, we also, not only are we saved, we also rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation to God. There are but two things for the people of God this morning. For the the people. For the people of Adam and Eve, believe. There is word of an alien righteousness that by which you can be justified and declared redeemed, justified, and also glorified in the Christ. You can be saved. The first point is faith. Believe the Lord. And the second point is this. Rejoice. You who have believed, rejoice in that salvation. Honor him and give thanks to him. We do that in song. We do that by making his name known just as Paul is doing to the Romans and to us today. And we do that as we live lives that are ordered as if the way of the Lord is good. 
Are we justified by that? No, I'm already justified in Christ. I just believe he's good. That's what my faith means. I believe he's good and his way is good. And so we rejoice in him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity of Romans, particularly these first four chapters. Lord Jesus, confirm us in this faith. Ground us in this faith. Give the gift of faith if it has never been received to the unbelieving heart this morning, just as your spirit and word worked in me and in others in this room work in that soul this morning. To cry out, Lord, I believe. Lord, for we who believe, work in us rejoicing, work in us worship, which is the outworking of faith in all of our lives. May we worship you as, as a transformed people with our lives. Thank you for your righteousness, a gift to us received by faith. We pray these things in the name of the just and the justifier. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.